Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Last month, it was announced that China and Brazil had signed an agreement on trade in mutual currencies, abandoning the use of the US dollar as an intermediary. The agreement means that the two countries will conduct the huge amount of trade that they do with each other directly, exchanging Chinese yuan for Brazilian real and vice versa instead of using the US dollar for settlements. Brazil's new president, Lula, on his first state visit to China, called for the countries of the BRICS group of nations, which is made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, to come up with their own alternative currency for use in trade. Every night I ask myself why all countries have to base their trade on the dollar, Lula said in his speech. Why can't we do trade based on our own currencies, he added, to loud applause from the Brazilian and Chinese dignitaries present at the event. Who was it that decided that the dollar was the currency after the disappearance of the gold standard? The strength of the US dollar over the last year has inspired a lot of hopeful thinking in emerging markets about reducing dependence on the US currency and economic sensitivity to US interest rates. The American rate hikes over the last year or so have highlighted how international monetary conditions are tied to those in the United States, and the Western sanctions imposed in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine have led to a significant concern globally about the power the US and Europe have in the global financial system, driving many emerging markets to look for a financial system independent of the West. Vladimir Putin announced last June that the BRICS were working on developing a new reserve currency based on a basket of currencies for its member countries. Russia's foreign minister said in January that the issue would be discussed at the BRICS summit in South Africa at the end of August. It's not all just talk either. Reuters pointed out yesterday that China's yuan is slowly but surely being adopted for more international payments, which they say could lay the foundation for a trade system running parallel to the dominant US dollar. New data shows that more cross-border transactions with China were settled in yuan in March than in dollars for the first time ever, and Argentina has announced that it aims to regularly pay for Chinese goods in yuan and not dollars. China has for some time aimed to increase the yuan's 2.2% share of global payments, but without opening its capital accounts and allowing the free movement of currency that makes using dollars and euros so convenient. Since the Western sanctions were imposed last year, Russia has become the fourth largest yuan trading hub outside of China. 
the one share of Russia's currency market has leapt to 40 to 45 percent from less than 1 percent where it sat before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The one share of world trade financing, according to SWIFT, has increased to 4.5% in February from 1.3% two years ago. While this is a big change, the US dollar still makes up 84% of world trade financing. So let's dig into whether a BRICS currency for international trade makes sense, how likely it is that the world would move away from using the dollar, and whether the dollar losing its global dominance would actually be bad for America and Americans. Okay, so people have been predicting the demise of the US dollar as a global reserve currency for decades. But the discussion of de-dollarization really picked up pace last year after sanctions were imposed on Russia over Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The sanctions added urgency even to countries that don't expect to have disputes with the United States to somewhat diversify away from the dollar. While there's some discussion of countries not liking the dependency they have on Fed policy decisions, this is likely much less of an issue overall. High US rates did lead to a stronger dollar and thus tighter financial conditions for any country that borrows in dollars, but this would likely have happened for many countries one way or another, as post-pandemic inflation occurred all around the world, and so rates would likely have gone up in most countries anyhow. Putin has, of course, been making the most noise about a BRICS currency union, and his motivation is fairly obvious. It's mostly driven by an urge to show deference to China and to undermine the United States and Europe. But we are hearing similar discussions from countries like Brazil and Argentina too. Zoltan Pozar, former Federal Reserve and US Treasury Department official, and now Credit Suisse Global Head of Short-Term Interest Rate Strategy, has argued that we may be observing the first shifts towards a multipolar world and deglobalization. In discussing a BRICS currency, it's worth noting that the term BRICS was originally coined in 2001, initially as BRIC by the Goldman Sachs economist Jim O'Neill in his report, Building Better Global Economic BRICS. In December 2010, South Africa was added to the list and the acronym was changed from BRIC to BRICS. There's no particular relationship or union between the BRICS countries other than that they were all included in a particularly popular report out of Goldman Sachs more than 20 years ago. Thus, there's no reason to think that a currency union between this group makes any more sense than a currency union between any randomly selected group of nations. Within the group, Russia, South Africa and Brazil are dwarfed by China and India. And when you really get down to it, it's just China that actually matters. China makes up 72% of the group's GDP, 80% of the group's growth, and the majority of its external surplus. Additionally, there are large oil-producing nations that are not included on the list, like Saudi Arabia, for example, who run large current account surpluses and would probably care more about how they store their reserves than many of the BRICS countries do. Daniel McDowell from Syracuse University argues 
that the traditional rule of thumb for central banks has been that they should hold enough foreign exchange reserves to cover around three months of their country's imports or all of its short-term debts. Reserves from this perspective are a rainy day fund to make sure an economy can still trade and avoid default if there's a crisis. Over the last 20 years, central banks around the world have been growing their reserves beyond this point. And once reserves get larger, as has been happening, central bankers begin to think of them as a portfolio where they want safe liquid investments and they seek to maintain a diverse portfolio that optimizes and stabilizes returns over time. He argues that it shouldn't be surprising that the US dollar's share of reserves declines during a period when reserve adequacy improves. This doesn't indicate a lack of confidence in the dollar. It just means that central banks are more flush than they were 20 years ago, and so their investment decisions reflect a different set of considerations. Brad Setzer of the Council on Foreign Relations points out that as China's reserves grew, they shifted their dollar portfolio from treasuries towards agencies and then equities, basically taking a bit more risk in what effectively is an investment portfolio. China began reducing the dollar share of foreign reserves in 2005, and according to Setzer, their diversification out of the dollar was more or less complete by sometime in 2011 or 2012. The Belt and Road Initiative, for example, allowed China to diversify their reserves around the world. Other countries have deployed assets around the world too, not always with great success, like the way Saudi Arabia made large investments in Credit Suisse and in the SoftBank Vision Fund. They're also deploying assets into a 170-mile-long city, which is designed to have no cars, streets, or carbon emissions. Apparently, it'll house 9 million people, be run by artificial intelligence, and is somehow designed to coexist with nature. I'm no expert in urban planning. I'm sure this is a great idea. But yeah, this is a thing you can do rather than buying treasuries. I promise I'm not making this up. I guess I'm impressed that there was no mention of blockchain in the plans. Who knows, though, maybe there is. I stopped reading the plans when I reached my daily limit of buzzwords. There's got to be a cutoff point. There's probably a blockchain in there somewhere. After all, it is a 170-mile-long city. Anyhow, it's worth noting that Russia did diversify and de-dollarize its reserves after the first sanctions were imposed in 2014. But this didn't really work out for them, as after the invasion of Ukraine, the EU froze more Russian reserves than the United States did. The Russian central bank also held gold reserves, though, so that part did work for them. The dollar is the most widely used currency in international trade because the US has the deepest and most flexible financial markets, the clearest and most transparent corporate governance, and, in spite of recent sanctions, the lowest amount of discrimination between domestic residents and foreigners. 
For another currency to compete with the US dollar, its home economy would have to provide similar or maybe even better conditions. There aren't many countries around the world that meet that standard. The world uses the dollar as a reserve currency not because the United States forces people to use it, but because a number of the largest economies run persistent trade surpluses, selling more goods than they buy. And surplus economies have to buy foreign assets in exchange for their surpluses. Countries basically either use the currency they get by exporting goods to import goods, or they store that currency in financial assets. The United States is the only large economy that's willing to generate deficits to soak up the surpluses generated by other large economies around the world. Surplus-running economies like China could in theory buy assets in other large global economies like the EU and Japan, but these economies, along with most other advanced non-Anglophone economies, run persistent surpluses themselves and are net acquirers of assets abroad. If China were to accumulate large euro reserves instead of US dollar reserves, the ECB would either have to put up with enough of an appreciation in the international value of the euro to undermine its export sector and force the economy into running deficits, or it would have to accumulate an equal amount of foreign reserves to neutralize the net impact of Chinese inflows meaning that higher Chinese purchases of European reserves would be matched by higher European purchases of foreign currency reserves, which would almost inevitably mean buying dollars. This would also mean an uncontrolled expansion in the domestic European money supply. So instead of buying other currency assets, could surplus economies like China buy commodities instead? A lot of people have been suggesting this. Unfortunately, this too might be problematic. Countries like Russia, Brazil, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela are all primarily commodity exporters. They would find themselves buying commodity reserves the most when their economies are booming and commodity prices are high. And they would most likely find themselves selling their commodity reserves when their economies are struggling and commodity prices are low. This would exacerbate the volatility of commodity prices, which would harm their economies. But worst of all, their reserves would be most valuable when they least need them and least valuable when they need them the most. This is the opposite of what countries want from their reserves. China is, of course, the world's largest commodity importer. So this situation might sound like it would work for them. But China's economic performance is also highly correlated with commodity prices in the same way as it is for commodity exporters, only with the direction of causality reversed. A booming Chinese economy would be a situation in which China is buying a lot of commodities anyhow, driving up prices. And a slow Chinese economy would be a situation where there's lower Chinese demand for commodities and thus lower prices. So once again, China would find itself buying high and selling low, an unattractive proposition. So could the Chinese yuan just be used as a reserve currency for the rest of the world or even for the BRICS? 
Well, China currently has a dual currency system in place to regulate the exchange rate of its money and maintain control over foreign investments. The Chinese renminbi is used for domestic transactions within mainland China, whereas the Chinese yuan is used for international transactions outside the mainland. This dual currency system allows the People's Bank of China to stop foreign investors from moving money into China and stop Chinese citizens investing their money abroad. To become a reserve currency for the rest of the world, China would have to give up control of its capital account, allowing foreigners unrestricted entry or exit into Chinese financial markets as their needs dictate. With an open capital account, the inflows and outflows would be driven by foreign rather than domestic considerations. China would find it impossible to run surpluses the way it currently does if they had a reserve currency. A lot would have to change in the way that the Chinese economy works for this sort of thing to happen. Because China exports so much more than it imports, the Chinese economy is much more vulnerable to currency volatility than the US is. A rapid strengthening of the currency would be more damaging to the Chinese economy than an equivalent strengthening of the US dollar would be to the US economy, especially because Chinese growth is dependent on its trade imbalance in a way in which the US isn't. Michael Pettis from Peking University argues that while it is possible for the dollar to stop playing the reserve currency role it plays, such a change would transform the structure of global trade as it would mean that the US would no longer be playing the outsized role it plays in accommodating global demand imbalances. He argues that the US role is not simply that it runs deficits. Its role over time has been balancing out whatever the rest of the world is doing. He points out that until the 1970s, as the world was rebuilding from two world wars, the world needed savings and the US accommodated this by running large permanent surpluses. It was only after the world was substantially rebuilt and became more concerned with acquiring demand and parking excess savings that the US began to accommodate these needs by running large permanent deficits. If the US were to stop balancing out the trade activities of the rest of the world, it's not obvious that China or any other large economy would decide to take on this role because it would mean transforming its economy and abandoning an administered financial system in favour of a market-based one and giving up control of both its capital account and its current account. China could in theory do this but it doesn't seem very likely at present. It's often argued that the United States benefits disproportionately from its reserve currency status. In the 1960s, the French Minister of Finance described the dollar's dominance in international trade as an exorbitant privilege. When we look at how the major global economies work, You'll notice that if the United States does have this exorbitant privilege, there are a surprising number of countries going out of their way to avoid sharing any part of it. 
most of the countries complaining about dollar dominance have capital controls in place. Capital controls which are as much about preventing foreigners from buying local government bonds as they are about preventing capital from leaving a country. Most countries specifically avoid providing their currency as a reserve currency. They don't seem to want any of this exorbitant privilege. The United States does not necessarily benefit on any grand scale from the current situation. American workers, farmers, producers and small businesses pay a significant economic cost as manufacturing moves abroad to surplus nations. Despite all of the bluster from politicians around the world, a BRICS reserve currency does not look like it's coming anytime soon. Paul McNamara from GAM argued in the FT last week that Russia and the Gulf energy exporting nations might want to accumulate rainy day sovereign wealth funds away from the US, but the alternative to the US is not a diversified group of growing emerging market countries, it's essentially one country, China. It's clear that China has no desire to give up any of the control that they would have to give up to become a reserve currency, even for the BRICS nations. It's not obvious that India would want to give power to China rather than to the United States either, as India and China don't have such a great relationship at present. Not only would a common BRICS currency be deeply flawed due to the fact that all of the involved countries are aiming to run surplus economies, in seeking a currency to challenge the US dollar, the non-Chinese members of the bloc would simply be increasing their already significant dependence on Beijing. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. If you found it interesting, please tell a friend so that the podcast can grow. Thanks to my supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. Have a great day and talk to you again soon. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.